Podcast. Christina Cho, and this is STEAM the Podcast, where I get to talk to amazing women and other underrepresented minorities in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the arts, or STEAM, and highlight the brilliant work they do and talk about the ways we can make STEAM truly more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. Today's episode will focus on mental health and wellness. How do you maintain your mental health and well-being while navigating STEAM? STEAM fields are highly competitive and demanding, and sometimes you just need a break. But how do you know when to stop? How do you know when you're about to burn out? And what is burnout? What about work-life balance? Is struggling with work-life balance universal or only relevant to certain groups of people? Today, we're going to talk about sustainability, how you can maintain your sanity and well-being so that you can stay and succeed in STEAM. For today's episode, I'm chatting with two very accomplished women who are both excellent at their jobs and can share how they maintained their mental health while pursuing their dream careers. Linda Friedlander is the head of education at the Yale Center for British Arts, where she directs Yale and New Haven community outreach programs. Prior to her impressive 26-year tenure at the Yale Center for British Arts, she was the Senior Associate Curator of Education at the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art in Hartford, Connecticut, and the Education Coordinator at the Mount Holyoke College Art Museum. Ms. Friedlander has also taught at the University of New Haven, Albertus Magnus College, Southern Connecticut State University, the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and Yale School of Medicine. Ms. Freelander received her Bachelor of Arts in Education and Art History from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and her Master of Science in Guidance and Counseling from Southern Connecticut State University. Her research and work involves merging fine arts with science and medicine, training the next generation of physicians and scientists in their observational skills, a critical skill set for any doctor or researcher. Her work of intersecting the arts and sciences has been showcased in 19 peer-reviewed publications and numerous lectures. For her excellent and innovative work, Ms. Friedlander has received several awards, including the Wilbur Cross Award, the Arts Council of New Haven Arts Award, and the Linda Lorimer Award. Ms. Friedlander is also an advocate for making art museums more inclusive and accessible. She has spearheaded projects like Out to Art, a 12-year-long collaborative project between YCBA and Chapel Haven Schleifer Center, a residential school for adults with neurodiverse abilities. She also runs an autism-focused access program called Exploring Artism. Exploring Artism is a weekend program for children on the autism spectrum. The children get to explore the museum galleries and engage in activities in a museum classroom. Dr. Laura Morrison is an associate professor of medicine and geriatrics at Yale School of Medicine, where she serves as the director of palliative medicine education and the director of Yale Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship. As a physician, Dr. Morrison cares for patients on the Yale New Haven Hospital Palliative Care Consultation Service. And as an educator, she trains the next generation of physicians on how to care for patients who need hospice and palliative care. Dr. Morrison received her Bachelor of Arts in Biology from Oberlin College and her MD from Case Western Reserve University. 
She completed her residency in internal medicine at Case Western, where she also served as a senior instructor and Metro Health Quality Improvement faculty scholar. She then completed her postdoctoral fellowship in geriatrics and palliative care at Baylor College of Medicine, where she moved up the academic ladder to the ranks of associate professor in the Department of Medicine. In 2013, Dr. Morrison joined Yale School of Medicine to become the Associate Professor of Medicine and Geriatrics and an affiliated faculty member of the Program for Biomedical Ethics. Dr. Morrison is a renowned medical educator who has won numerous honors and awards for her work in developing physician fellowship training standards for hospice and palliative medicine. Her current educational focus is to implement and advance local and national medical student and resident hospice and palliative care competencies and curricula and teaches nationally as a vital talk faculty member. In addition to being a physician and educator, Dr. Morrison is a scholar, having authored over 16 peer-reviewed original research articles, multiple book chapters, commentaries, editorials, letters, and op-eds. Clearly, our guests are highly accomplished, impressive women, and I'm excited to have them on our podcast. Linda and Laura, welcome to Steamed. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm so excited to have you guys here. And, and before we get on to the main topic today, I thought you can spend a little bit of time sharing with our listeners what you guys do. And so, Laura, can you share a little bit of the work that you do as a physician? Sure. I'm really delighted to be here with you today and talk to your audience. I've been a physician for over 25 years and initially trained in internal medicine and then found my passion in geriatrics, which is care of older adults, and then ultimately on to palliative care. I find most people don't know what palliative care is, so I'll share that palliative care is a subspecialty focused on care of any patient with a serious illness and their family. Uh, this can be at any stage of an illness, early on or more toward end of life, um, or at any age. And diagnoses range from cancer to dementia to heart failure and many others. Um, we focus on three main areas usually. One is symptom management to help people really feel as well as they can in the midst of their illness with symptoms like pain um, anxiety, sometimes fatigue, nausea, um, just trying to help people live the best they can with their illness. Now, we also help with um, coping with the stress of having a serious illness. And this can be in the emotional realm or sometimes spiritual, financial, social. So it depends on each person where the stress is. And then lastly, we support important conversations to make sure that patients' values and goals are really aligning well with the treatments that they're receiving. We don't want people to be undertreated or overtreated. Um, and so, you know, really, again, supporting patients and their loved ones around all those areas um, is really gratifying. And in the academic medical center, um, as was mentioned before, I get to do a lot of creative things, too, that are really exciting to me always, our teaching, and then uh, working with our interdisciplinary team. 
And so in the teaching realm, I get to work with medical students, residents, fellows, including our, our own palliative care fellows and trainees from other fields as well, sometimes in the classroom, but most often at the bedside. And we learn together, you know, every day. I also get to work with this amazing team of colleagues that include um, those in chaplaincy, social work, pharmacy, nursing, psychology. And again, I'm inspired every day um, by the care that we're able to provide as a team to our patients. In both of those, we focus a lot on wellness. And that's something really important in the field of palliative care. Um, and in that frame, we, we've really tried to bring in the humanities and this opportunity to do art museum teaching has been wonderful over the last 10 years. And it was quite some time ago that Linda and I crossed paths and have had the pleasure of really getting to collaborate since then. So I'm, I'm quite grateful to be here today and also for my um, opportunities to work with Linda over time. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And how about you, Linda? Can you share with our listeners the work you do as an arts educator for the Yale Center for British Arts? Yes. And thank you for having me. I love what I do because there are numerous outlets um, in many different areas of being an arts educator. Uh, clearly, when one works in an art museum, it would be expected that you are familiar with what the collections are in the museum and how to use them uh, with a variety of different audiences. The field of museum or the profession of museum education really didn't uh, start in full until the 1970s, which is really not all that long ago. Um, and since then, it has grown prolifically. There are numerous graduate schools now that offer degrees just in museum education and various aspects of that. Um, we do try to respond to changes in terms of cultural, social, political uh, issues that are going on and with the way in which art has changed also over the years mm -hmm. and particularly um, in the last 20 years, uh, it has changed dramatically uh, as a way of reflecting what is going on in um, these diverse areas of who we are. Uh, we have, on many levels, redefined what an art museum is all about. And one of the things that museum education has done is shift the focus primarily not just on the object, but rather on the visitor. And how can we make the visitor experience um, the best that it can be? Many of our visitors aren't really sure about what their expectations should be. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we have to do is develop programs uh, to show how looking at art, how making art can enhance all different kinds of um, experiences, feelings of well-being, um, intellectual growth. Uh, and as our society has gotten to be much more engaged with the a diversity of um, our population. Uh, we've 
gotten more involved, engaged in the whole um, issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. So this has broadened our outreach to neurodiverse individuals who before really were not expected to be in museums. Uh, mm-hmm. And also um, the center, uh, the British Art Center is very much encouraged to do as much outreach as we can go into not just the Yale community because we are a part of Yale University, but it is located in a city that uh, could use a lot of help in terms of scholastics, in terms of uh, social issues. um, Mm. And we try to develop community projects, um, things that work within the community, um, that we go out into the community um, in terms of bringing things to people besides trying to get them into the museum. Wow, that sounds really cool. So uh, when you said, you know, people go to museums not knowing like what their expectations are, like what they're what's expected of them. I'm one of those people. I'm very, <laughs> I'm really I, I think I'm very cultured. And, you know, and I try to go to museums and I'll sit there and be like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to look. Am I supposed to read? the description (laughs) am i supposed to just let it let me let me like feel something so whenever i go i feel very um you know uncouth like (laughs) i'm just trying to figure out my way you know faking it till i make it but it's so nice to hear that you know maybe i'm not the only one suffering from it because clearly there's a person who designs entire programs for people like me um and so that's really awesome um So I wanted to give you guys some time to talk about each other because Emily, one of our writers and advisors on Project Steamed, actually recommended Linda for this specific episode. And Linda recommended Laura. And so how do you two know each other? Like, how does an art educator and a palliative care doctor cross paths? And um, why? So, Linda, why did you recommend Laura as a guest on our podcast? First of all, she's a terrific person. She has a lot of important things to say and is very articulate in terms of the way she does it. Um, We really did not know each other before um, we met um, over her bringing a group of individuals to the museum. Um, I think I believe there were postdocs, uh, Laura, or some people that had a a fair amount of training uh, and getting even more training in what they do. And Mm -hmm. um, it has been something that has been recorded over many of the groups who begin to use the environment of the museum as a place to learn, as a place to share, as a place to feel. Um, in that, um, working with medical students, nursing students, physical therapists, and so forth, um, postdocs, uh, these individuals come to me with very specific kinds of um, ideas about what they'd like to have transpire while their students are in the museum. And Laura had very specific goals. She'll tell you about those. And then um, it becomes a challenge on my part to see how I can match those goals with particular objects that will engage the audience and get them to reflect, to to talk about things and interact. Uh, And I remember one audience um, that when it was almost time to leave the person who was with them, whether it was Laura or someone else, 
had said, how have you felt about the experience? And they said, this has been so great, except until when I looked at my watch and realized that I only had 10 minutes left and that what I would be going back to um, <laughs> and um, that they, you know, I mean, she hit it right on the mark in terms of providing an opportunity to get out of their workspace during the work day mm, and doing something yeah. completely different, something just for themselves. And um, but it kind of fizzled out when they realized that they had to leave and go back to what where they came from. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of a typical feeling that Linda's describing from, you know, the trainees that get to go to the art museum. It's like it's such a special privilege during the work week, you know. Um, yeah, I want to echo what Linda was saying and that she has been um, just a wonderful collaborator. And I, I feel so privileged to have, you know, met her along the way. And and we've had this great chance to actually work together and um I think when I first came to Yale, I, part of the reason I was recruited was to start our fellowship program. Mm -hmm. And my vision for that, based on my experience thinking about the standards for training, was to really incorporate a lot of humanities um, mm -hmm. into sort of this whole realm of self-care that we're acknowledging today, this wellness and resilience component. Um mm -hmm. And very early on, I saw this opportunity. I had been aware of some art museum activities, but I saw this opportunity at Yale to go um, as a faculty member and experience kind of this observation opportunity, um, the way that we teach in an art museum. And so I experienced it as a learner. And right away, I knew I was going to do this with the fellows. And so um the, the goal of these sessions is really, as Linda said, number one is just to pull people out of the hospital and the clinic mm -hmm. and give them a space to actually reflect and have some quiet. But more than that, it's an opportunity to really, um, in some cases, we emphasize observation skills. So mm -hmm. when you walk into a room, what is it that you're really noticing? And this is looking at a painting and going into deeper levels um, of what you're observing is, is a nice way to do that as an exercise. So um, there's some other neat educational strategies that we use. But um, over time, I take my fellows about twice a year. Um, and lucky for us, we get to just walk two blocks and go into the museum. Um, and multiple times I've been able to um, bring Linda in as a collaborator again and have her meet us as a museum educator. Um, she's been able to help me, you know, highlight different themes like joy, um, sadness, mortality um, in some of the pieces of art that we've gotten to look at. Wow. Yeah. So. My husband is a dermatology resident at Yale and every year, I believe they go to the Yale British um, Arts, uh, Yale Center for British Arts to do, I think what you're describing, because I remember his first year, someone took a photo of him. I, I, they have like those chairs, I guess he was sitting on like a fold out chair in front of a piece and he's like looking really like intense, like, you know, thoughtful and whatever he's doing. 
And um, I asked him, like, well, what are you doing at a museum like for residency training? He's like, oh, we were at the museum and we're sitting there and we're like looking at art and, you know, for like observing stuff. And I'm like, what <laughs> what are you I like? How do you what is going on? So um, that's so cool. It's so interesting. I, I, I've never heard of something like this. And I can imagine how um, how wonderful of an experience that could be, because it is very different from what we do every day. It's, you know, and, and it's also, um, at least for me, so I'm a bench work science, I'm a, a bench work scientist, right? I work, I work in the lab. I work with cells and mice and all those kinds of things. And, um, it's very small. And a lot of times you get tunnel vision. And I think the idea of kind of taking a step back and entering a, a world that we might not be very familiar and comfortable with as scientists or physicians and being able to learn a new set of skills or learn how to deal with feelings that we don't necessarily deal with all the time is it's a really cool intersection of art and medicine and science. And um, I just wanted to ask like, how, I mean, how did, yeah, how did you come up with such a an idea that like I know you said you were a learner, like you experienced this too, but as a part of training, like what? How did you and Linda come up with these pieces? Like, so if you can give an example, if you could elaborate on one, like you want to talk about the feeling of mortality. So, like, how how would you go about putting together a collection or a piece for people to experience or deal with mortality through art? Well, I think the way that we're able to work together is that I'm able to bring some of the clinical context and some of the educational perspective from, say, palliative care and what we're doing mm -hmm. daily. Um, and, and then Linda's able to draw on her, you know, her expertise and her, you know, massive knowledge base about pieces of art and their collections and, you know, really skillfully identify some pieces that, may spark some particularly interesting themes and, you know, and then together, if we're working together, um, we're able to kind of guide the trainees on site, you know, to certain questions and, you know, give them a chance to, I think the gift of it all really is the time mm. and the space to just think a little deeper. And interestingly, I remember, um, it's and the other fun part is that they're bouncing off of each other as learners. Um, one of the lessons is always, wow, this person was seeing it this way and I was seeing it this way. <laughs> and remembering all the different perspectives people can have. Mm -hmm. Um, so someone, two different people may look at one piece and one may see, you know be thinking about mortality or thinking that the person in the painting may be dying soon. And another person may not see it that way at all. Mm. It gives you an opportunity to think what, it, how is what I do every day affecting my perspective? <laughs> okay. You know? Yeah. Um, and similarly, I think Linda's worked in this too and may want to say more, but recently, of course, with all the focus on um, bias, implicit bias yeah. and mm -hmm. racism and, um, we've had even more opportunity to kind of bring out those themes. And, and those are mm -hmm. really important in art and medicine because mm -hmm. we need to know, have ways of getting more familiar with our biases and making them mm -hmm. explicit more than implicit. I would love to expand on that. Like, Linda, can you exp expand on that a little bit? I, I remember um, 
I had a, an experience uh, where I went to visit um, a dear friend in the hospital uh, the night before she was having exploratory surgery for cancer the next day. And mm -hmm. um, I could see by her behavior, um, she couldn't sit still and she was, you know, yeah. her hands were ringing and she was putting her fingers through her hair and the resident he didn't really come in. He opened up the door and used his foot to block the door from closing. So he didn't even come up to her, mm -hmm. looked at her and said, so how are you doing? And, you know, most patients who are, I have found, who are extraordinarily nervous and upset also tend to be compliant um, and say, oh, I'm okay. And um, he mm -hmm. said, good, um, everything's going to be fine and I'll see you in the morning. And he left. Hmm. And I, I was I was just beside myself. Um, and I went home and my husband is a physician. And I said, I cannot believe that he could not read her body language and to see the intense drama that she was engaged in with herself and how nervous yeah. and frightened she was. Um, and he didn't even have the respect to come in to the room um, and mm. shut the door. Um, and I said, you know, I've got to work with your residents because they really need help with this. Yeah. And he said, um, don't wait until they're residents. He said, start with when they're first year medical students so that they have mm. learned something about this and can be practicing it through their clinical growth. So I got in touch with um, uh, a dermatologist uh, who mm -hmm. uh, was a very good friend. Um, and we put this um, idea of using works of art, um, which he had been doing, uh, in order to stimulate medical students uh, and residents and uh, teach them how to be better physicians. Uh, mm -hmm. So we did a three-year controlled study. And um, the results were that um, those that had the um, intervention at the museum did far better on the um, uh, post-test than uh, the others. So we went to the Dean of Medical School Education and uh, asked if this could be adopted. And he said, absolutely. So they made it mandatory. Um, and that was um, in, in 2001 is when the wow. uh, article uh, came out. Um, it's now spread to over 250 medical schools in this country. Um, wow. And we both of us have gone to different international medical schools hospitals um, uh, being invited when they heard about the program. Um, and then it expanded to the nursing school and uh, PA school, physician's assistants and so forth. Um, and I, I have a stack of, we always ask for uh, comments afterwards about how it influenced um, the medical students. And um, the overwhelming majority talked about the fact that um, they needed to, they felt that as a medical student, they needed to come up with the right answer to every question asked and to be the first person to do it. So these are mm -hmm. intense, you know, um, Yale medical students. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't accept that yeah. when they had to observe something, they had to slow down the looking and they had to describe something objectively before they could um, 
give me any interpretations or draw any conclusions. Mm. And their comments were that was really hard for them to do. Um, so mm -hmm. the issue became um, that they needed to learn how to look at their patients in a much more um, methodical um, and slower way. And um, at the end of the gallery part, which was about three hours, we then got the students in a classroom and we had six by or eight by 10 color photographs of dermatologic of patients with dermatologic issues. And dermatology mm -hmm. is a very visual um, subspecialty or specialty. Right. Um, so we made them do the same thing with the patients and looking at rashes and um, in, in all different colors and variations. And the the transition from the painting upstairs to the photograph was just, it, it was revelatory in that they, they were able to do it. I mean, the learning curve was so high um, and so quick. Um, and wow. yeah, so I mean, that's, that's how that part of it happened. And so mm. have incorporated that in some way or another with most groups that come in now. That is really brilliant, actually. <laughs> and it's like the perfect, um, it's the perfect representation of STEAM, like art plus STEM. Yeah. And it, it's so, I think what you're describing is, is it, I mean, I'm trying to think of how I can impl implement it into my own um my own training for myself, but also in the future, if I, I see you do this with your finger. Yes. Well, um, but like, I'm thinking, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, we will talk about is mm -hmm. what keeps us going and how we feel good yeah. about work and so forth. Um, and I got a, an, if I may indulge. Um, so I, I got an email uh, a couple of weeks ago from a former medical student and said, you know, I took the enhancing observational skills class I'm now a, a researcher, a postdoc, and so forth. Um, he was an MD, PhD. And he mm -hmm. said, I was thinking that there is a place for talking to my uh, 11 other co-collaborators in the lab um, and the faculty with whom I work. Um, when I explained to her what I had in mind, she said, let's, let's see if we can do that. And basically what it was, and I came in and he showed me all the apparatus and, you know, this very, um, uh, what to me was um, um, a, a camera, a microscope, um, <laughs> and where they put the mouse and how they anesthetize it and so forth. But what he wanted to do was to have a common language amongst all the people in the lab. So when they were looking at something um, under the microscope that uh, was enlarged or made smaller, that they had a common way to discuss it with each other and to figure wow. out, um, are they both looking at the same thing? Are they both noticing the same kinds of things under the microscope? scope um, that each other is doing and how he felt that that could enhance uh, the scholarship that they were trying to do. So I mm. met with um, then the faculty person and this is a, a wonderful spinoff of something that started and somebody who felt that he found another use for this uh, in terms of um, his uh, colleagues and uh, mm -hmm. uh, doing research at the medical school. So like how, I mean, how good is that? You know, that is super yeah. cool. And now I'm going to sit there. I'm going to be thinking like tonight and, and for, I don't know how long I'm going to, I'm going to try to think of ways 
like how like how could I implement the programs that you have and the things that you do to my own training and maybe also with my collaborators? I mean, I think <laughs> uh, scientists, as as bright as we are, aren't necessarily the best communicators. And I think it's because a lot of times we work in isolation and we mm-hmm. work in um you know, in, in, in very focused, you know, very specific questions. And a lot of times we, when it comes time for us to present our work or share our work, we can't relay what we have in our heads. And maybe um, part of the training for scientists should be things like this, where, you know, you look at a piece of art and how do you communicate your observation to one another? I, I think this is brilliant, but I got to think about this now. <laughs> it's going to be something I, I would I think sh- about. I'll share another example, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. exercises. We often end with this, which is called a personal response tour um, okay. or a personal response exercise where whoever's kind of um, facilitating provides a prompt of some sort, you know, like you know, think about where you are in your leadership training or think about where you are in your mentorship pathway or, and, you know, go out into the gallery for the next 20 minutes and, and see which piece of art speaks to you the most Hmm. with, through that lens. Um, And it's nice because you do it in a small group. So there may be four to eight people And after the 20 or 30 minutes where people have identified a piece of art, it could be a sculpture, painting, um, any sort of piece of art that that identifies with them. You go as a group to each one and each person gets to sort of share what it is that, you know, resonated with them in particular. So um, it's really a great reflection exercise and gives a lot of insight and I think gets people starting to go to a deeper level. That is really cool. And I'm so glad we spent some time talking about this because I, I mean, our, our listeners have had different episodes on, you know, starting from how to interview to how to, you know, network to how to deal with, um, you know, microaggressions or racism or sexism and all these things. And I think what we're starting to talk about today is just, you know, ways to really um, help yourself kind of express how you might be feeling coming out of just, you know, your goal. Like, okay, I'm, I'm now going to be in steamed uh, in a steam field and I got to focus. I got to get the job. I got to do this. I have all these check marks to kind of get the job or stay in the job. But now it's like, okay, ha- slow things down, <laughs> you know, leave what you're doing a little bit and come back to yourself. It sounds like that's, you know, this is kind of mm-hmm. the perfect um, uh, space for this conversation, I think, where, you know, we're wrapping up the series and we're starting to now go, OK, now you're here. Take care of yourself, too. So I, I want to segue a little bit now into like the main topic, which is, you know, uh, one of the hardest things about being in a very competitive or very driven, you know, um, field, it, it's that it's very hard to slow down. It's very hard to take a step back and um, pause because there's this idea. And Linda mentioned this earlier with, with medical students that you have to be the first, you have to be quick. You got to get there. You got, you got, you got to be number one. There's like a very strong, I got to be doing this faster than everyone else kind of feeling that is rampant in these very competitive fields. And um, I, I wanted to talk about how do you, 
learn or how do you hear your body or your mind telling you, okay, we got to slow down a little bit. So um, kind of jumping to like the idea of burnout, right? So how, how do you recognize when you're about to burn out? And how have you both dealt with burnout if you have? And um, yeah, that that's my question for you guys is, you know, uh, you've had all these, you guys have had this amazing career trajectory. You guys have done so much amazing work and it comes with a lot of effort and time. And I'm sure there have been times that were hard. So how have you identified burnout and how did you deal with it? Well, I think... Um... It's, it's a really great question and so timely, obviously. COVID added a lot of layers mm-hmm. onto all of that as well. Um, I, you know, first, I don't think burnout is inevitable for everybody, um, but it certainly is quite common. And a lot, at least on the medical side of things, a lot of that is driven by just all of the demands and um, barriers that are put in place by our systems. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many things that clinicians have to keep up with just to meet all the check boxes that are sort of required, whether it's for a patient or for their own credentialing or, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I don't think it's inevitable, but um, I think it links so clearly to what we were just talking about because, um, the key thing is really those self-reflection skills. And so that's another reason why the time in the art museum and and similar kind of settings that allow people to journal or doodle and think, um, if if we're not thinking, then we're not going to identify, you know, where we are on that spectrum. And when we think about burnout, The most common tool that's used, you know, is the Maslach burnout inventory in terms of research. There are other ones as well, but that tool helps us remember the themes of depersonalization, um, a decreased sense of our own productivity, Mm -hmm. you know, and emotional exhaustion, among other similar themes. So we have to be able to reflect on where we are in those areas. And if we're feeling like isolating, you mentioned before how isolating things can be in science. It's also true in medicine. It's very true in academic settings. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, being attuned to this, you know, am I feeling like withdrawing or am I engaging Um, How am I feeling about my productivity? What's my frustration level? Um, You know, and and how am I feeling? Like, what does my bandwidth? I mean, that that aspect of emotional exhaustion is particularly, I think, poignant. Mm -hmm. Um, In my own field of palliative care, um, I think, you know, there are many things that protect us from burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also aspects that make us a little bit higher risk. Okay. You know, these hard conversations yeah. that we have, the um the sadness that can be there. But there with the sadness, there's often still a, a lot of um uh inspiration and a lot of uplift too. Mm-hmm. You know, so but sometimes the balance is sort of more one way than the other. And, mm-hmm. and we kind of have to really be on top of how we're managing our own 
emotions. And um, certainly, even though things can be uplifting, at the end of the day, things can be kind of exhausting. And we have to measure whether we're getting, you know, whether we're debriefing and, and kind of able to sustain ourselves over time. So I think, um, I think these self-reflection opportunities and, mm-hmm. and, and trying to encourage people to really build that in as a regular um, professional tool, mm-hmm. a, a leadership tool is if you're not taking care of yourself, then you're not bringing your best self to work. And that, kind of goes into all of our professionalism. So mm-hmm. we we really have to be taking care of ourselves to to bring our best to our patients and their families. Right. Yeah. How about you, Linda? Yeah, I was I was just I'm curious, Laura, if you know, self-care and so forth was ever a part of your training. Um, going into palliative care, what was was that? It's a great question. It's one of the reasons I love our field and I love mm-hmm. being a fellowship director um, <laughs> because one of our, you know, when in creating the competencies and creating what we call entrustable professional activities, those things that we need people to be doing well independently mm-hmm. to represent the competency of the field. Self-care has been called out as one of like our, you know, 17 tasks that we have to be able to do for sustainability. Um, And so as far as I know, we're really probably the field that emphasizes it the most. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm aware of other fields who've borrowed some of our materials um, and um, and are rightly, you know, um, integrating that into their own training pathways and expectations. But um, to answer Linda's question, I, I really didn't get training in self-care or resilience, certainly as a medical student, as a resident. Um, and I'm old enough that our field actually wasn't uh, a, an official subspecialty yet when I did my fellowship. And so only now, since 2006, is hospice and palliative medicine, an official subspecialty with all the accreditation and all the structure. So um, I, it's it's really been an honor and really fun to figure out how to incorporate that and teach mm-hmm. the next generation, as, as Linda said. Mm-hmm. Wow. But we're not experts at it. I think <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not the best example all the time. So um, it's it's definitely a place for us all to keep um, innovating, yeah, <laughs> and um, and holding ourselves to a higher standard for sure. Because we we um, we need to do better. We yeah. need to do better. I think. I mean, you, so you know, I I watched my husband go through you know medical school and his interneer. Now he's in. He's a resident and. Um, he'll always say, you know, dermatology is not as intense as other fields, you know, and, but I can see when he's reaching the the level of like, oh, he's, he's hitting a wall now. Like I can feel it when it's happening. We say people are getting crispy. 
<laughs> oh no, that's funny. That's good. That's not good when people are getting crispy. <laughs> but it, it, crispy sounds funnier than burnt out. I can sense it when he's about to get there. And it's funny to me because he'll say things like, oh, but you know, it's not as bad. It could be worse. I could be in a more, you know, more intense field or um, or people will say about like scientists, well, you have your own schedule, you know, it's not the same kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I think each individual has a different threshold and different needs and um, different capacity to handle pressure and stress and um, physical exhaustion and emotional exhaustion. And I think um, what you mentioned about, you know, r- reflection and giving yourself time to kind of check in on yourself, right? And saying, okay, how am I feeling today? Am I, am I just like really tired? Do I just need to stop working and lie down for a little bit, take a break, maybe to ask for a vacation, maybe take a sick day. I think that level of um, self-awareness, but also kind of the power to be able to speak out loud what you need, it's not easy, um, especially for people who are marginalized, especially for uh, for people who belong to communities that haven't really had a voice or representation in the field. And so um, this is something that I, I wanted to kind of talk about, but you know, do you feel like the idea of burnout or needing to have work-life balance or you know, having to check in, is that something that's a little bit gendered or you know, more relevant to people who have been historically marginalized? Or do you think it's pretty universal? This, this like need to stay kind of attuned to yourself, this need to be, um, aware, like aware, like I, cause I think that sometimes I'll get the question of, Hey, how do you do work-life balance? How are you a mom and doing this? But my husband gets never, rarely gets asked, how are you being a dad and a physician and a scientist? Cause he's an MD PhD. People don't ask him that as much as they ask me, or people ask me like, are you sure you want to stay in academia? Like, how are you going to be a parent and how are you going to do this? And I feel like I have to be a little bit more self-aware and conscious, conscientious, (laughs) am I using the right word, Um, uh, of my status so that I can kind of be like, no, I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. And I can do all these things. So I wanted to ask you guys, do you think this idea of work-life balance and self-care and all of these things are a little bit gendered or only really asked to people who have historically not been represented in STEAM? I never looked at it that way that, you know, it was gendered, um, except the old bugaboo that um, sciences were for boys, and and this is now using binary language, but scientists were for boys, um, and humanities and so forth were for girls. And um, so girls always, you know, were slipped into these caregiving kind of um um, uh, jobs, professions, and so forth. Um, and, you know, being the oldest one on this panel, um, <laughs> it, it, it um, well, it does make a difference what generation you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, there just um, wasn't that, co- I mean, it, I was aware of it. Um, my mother's generation was not, but she was somebody that always worked and uh took time off and um, did things and went away for vacations with girlfriends and things like that. And she didn't see that as anything other than normative, whereas a lot of women her generation just didn't do that. 
you know, mm-hmm. you traveled without your husband? And she didn't even understand the question. She said, you know, so um, I, I can only kind of reflect on myself, but I can only um, comment also on the changing role that the museum is, has taken on, which is being a place where we suddenly are being asked to be aware of self-care for visitors. Mm. And that means if we have some kind of an exhibition that has some either provocative things in it about um, uh, aggressive behavior or biased behavior, um, how do we handle having images for people to look at that will draw up all kinds of horrible um, memories and feelings and what is our role to do we protect them against it do we not show a photograph of a tree um, that was used to lynch people um, Mm. on a plantation in new orleans Um, and you don't see any of the lynching it's just the tree that was used Um, and for the people to whom their family history involved lynching, and there were. We had dramatic kinds of um, reactions to this to kind of try to mitigate some of that. We had um, a big table with carefully selected books that were about lynching, about racism, um, about the artist. Um, And I even wanted a section on children's books. Mm -hmm. And these turned out to be, you know, large color books Uh, with a lot of pictures in them. Um, And I had a reading specialist read them. We talked about age appropriateness. um, And my reason for putting those out was I had no expectation that there'd be a lot of kids coming to this and reading it, but it was for librarians and it was for teachers. And those were exactly the people who, um, and we also offered response cards. So people could even say, this was something that needed to be said. This was something you needed to bring to the forefront of American history. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're glad that we did it. But then there were others that felt it was a terrible thing to do and it was painful and it was hurtful. Um, One museum actually uh, not um, had a show and what they did, they kept having these markers, uh, you know, these warnings, Um, the images in this um, uh, case, which was covered, um, may uh, upset you emotionally. um, And and these weren't the rest of the words. So look at it at your own risk, you know, kind of thing. Um, They were magazines that had images of um, Ku Klux Klan folks and things like that. And then at the end of the exhibition, um, they actually even had um, cards of professions professional people who were social workers, who were psychologists, psychiatrists, if people felt that they really needed to further the conversation in this um, um, exhibition, what it you know presented, or they just needed it for their own selves. Mm. And so for me, this was something certainly that I was always aware of. And my 
so I don't know, I won't digress down there. But um, museums are now concerned with the self-care of their visitors. Mm. And we have social workers writing books about this, and I've wow. got them on my shelf. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, who knew? Um, so that's being taken to kind of another level. Now, yeah. in terms of my own personal um, feelings about it, I think we do need to be have self-awareness about how we are feeling um, just in terms of um, load of work and responsibility and support that you're getting from um, administration uh, and so forth. Um, that that's really important. Um, I'm extremely lucky that I really love what I do. And I take it upon myself that um, if I feel like I'm slipping, if I feel like I'm becoming irrelevant, then I really need to be aware of that. Mm. Um, but I tend to, if I wait long enough, a new idea will pop up or <laughs> this, you know, PhD, MD, PhD will call me and say, I want to introduce you to my lab, you know, colleagues, um, and maybe we can work out a collaboration kind of thing. Um, but I think self-awareness is really important. You know, I wanted to do this episode towards the end of the series. Um, and I thought this episode would be really important because I wanted our listeners to know that mental health and well-being, like self-care is super important if you want to stay and succeed in STEAM for sustainability. And that's not just for any STEAM field, but just any work environment, um, especially any career path that has a long way to go before you know you reach a certain level of success. And this is a conversation my husband and I have all the time about you know, how do we define success and how do we get there? Either way, however you define it, there is a journey. And in order for you to go through that journey, you have to be able to kind of, you know, care for yourself so that you're at your tip top shape, you know, so you can keep going when things get hard. And I wanted our listeners to know that it is absolutely normal to feel tired and exhausted and maybe even sometimes want to give up um, because there are challenges. And especially for um, those who are underrepresented or those who feel like they don't belong, it's even more exhausting because there's an emotional component there uh, where you feel like you're working alone or you're working against a system that hasn't necessarily um, been inclusive for you. And so um, I know that for myself, I've experienced burnout and it's almost cyclic. So I'll like work hard. I'll push myself. I'll, I'll get to, you know, this point where I'm like, oh, oh no, I'm, I just, I'm done. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can write anymore. I can't think anymore. Uh, my experimental design is starting to kind of not look so good. And at that point I need a break, but I've also learned to recognize when I'm about to reach that breaking point. You know, it took me, you know, all of grad school to really figure that out. Um, and so I wanted to ask you guys what you do for self-care, because for me, my self-care is literally walking away from my work. Like I, I, I stop whatever I'm doing wrap up whatever I can, go get myself a massage, <laughs> go eat a meal that I really enjoy that might not be fancy or healthy, but just tastes really good, like chili cheese fries or something. <laughs> um, 
And then I literally sit in front of a, a, a screen and watch like weird stand up comedy or like Korean variety shows. And I just laugh. I just it's like nonsense. Nothing. It's like nonsensical laughter. And that just that's my self-care. Or I go to do yoga or like, you know, my husband will go to the gym. But what do you to do for self-care? You know, what what do you guys do to make sure you're taken care of? So that you can continue doing all the awesome work that you guys do. Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And it would be wonderful if at some point in the future, it's kind of a normalized part of conversation. And if everyone had an answer, you know, that it was Mm -hmm. kind of an expected practice for all of us. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tell our fellows is if I ask you how you're doing with your self-care, you know, I'm expecting you to tell me when your next vacation is and (laughs) and what your, what your plan is Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and to update me on your latest experiments in (laughs) (laughs) self-care. No, I think, you know, we're all a work in progress. And as I said before, I'm by no means the best example, but I think by nature of kind of thinking about this a fair bit and trying to teach it some, um, I have been able to experiment and I, there are, I have a fairly broad selection of things that I can draw on, which is really nice. And sometimes things are working better than others. Um, certainly I've tried meditation at different points. Mm -hmm. I wish I could say that it had like sunk in and really stuck. (laughs) But it seems to take a fair bit of effort still to make it happen. And at some mm-hmm. level, that's not how it how it really is meant to be. <laughs> but but I, I believe in it so much and I'm I'm committed to continuing to gradually still keep trying it. But mm-hmm. um I mean, similar to what you said, Christina, I think again being um having some regularity where you reflect on how you're doing so that you can pick it up maybe a little earlier so you don't get to quite as an advanced place where it's harder to recover mm-hmm. um but for me exercise has always been kind of it's not even so much um like a self-care strategy it's more of like my baseline mm. like if if it were missing it would be a problem you know mm-hmm. more than Um, and I think, um, you know, occasionally journaling is in my wheelhouse. I kind of go between journaling, yoga, meditation, something in there that allows for more reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, you know, one of the big things is creating some sort of distance from the day Mm. and, and trying to figure out how what your boundary, how porous your boundary is going to be between Mm. the workspace and the home space. Um, And that continues to always be dynamic, I think, as well. Um, But I would also say that for me in particular, and I think for many, many people at this time in our history, the ability to think about loss and bereavement Mm-hmm. And grief within a self-care space is also important. Mm-hmm. So many people have had losses during yeah. COVID and, and before and after mm-hmm. uh, victims of different stressors and, yeah. um, and violence. And, yeah. you know, there are many voices that I'm not able to represent today myself. So, mm-hmm. um, 
But within palliative care, I think we also try to bring that voice of dealing with loss and bereavement. And Mm -hmm. within our team, we have rituals. um, And I, I try to encourage people to think of rituals in their lives that can create self-care and resilience, you know, whether that's having the same breakfast every morning or a special cup of tea or whether we, when it, when we use the hand gel before we go into every patient room, we just take a moment to think, okay, I'm going to be focused on this patient. I'm letting go of the last patient and and my mind is open and I'm bringing my full self into the room. Um, or whether it's your ride home in the evening or I ride my bike to back, back and forth to work. So my bike ride home, you know, so where are these um, rituals in the day or rituals of saying goodbye to people and acknowledging loss? I think those are those are all very powerful mm-hmm. um, components, at least for me. Mm. You know, sending condolence cards is something that we do. And and quarter, if we're on our game, every quarter of the year, we're, we're reading the names of all of the patients that we've lost and thinking about the lessons that we learned and the wisdom that they passed on to us. Mm. And how about you, Linda? What is, what is your version of self-care? What does that look like? God, I should have met Laura a long time ago. Um, (laughs) I can only think of when um, some of my grandkids came for Thanksgiving. And they came in because I I, could be rather intense. And they said, these are the ground rules. (laughs) And one said... Not talking about my college applications because she's a senior in high school, and the younger one who had an exceptional difficulty with um, COVID and is still pulling herself together. She's mm-hmm. only fourteen. Mm-hmm. Said, "I am not talking about gun control. I am not talking about mass shootings. I am not talking about politics. Nothing like that." And mm-hmm. I said, "Got it," because. We tend to mix it up when we talk about politics because I want to make sure they're up to date on things and so forth. (laughs) But they just were able to say, this is what I cannot handle or I I want nothing to do with it. It's it's too hard for me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, just good for you yeah um and mm-hmm. absolutely yes and um and it also showed me you know what their expectation might was of how <laughs> I was going to be okay and I was um I was just happy that they were able to be honest and they always have been mm-hmm. um and we just had a wonderful time together okay yeah so um Exercising is an important part of my, you know, daily routine. It's something um, that I would definitely um, uh, not feel as good at the end of the day if I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Laura talking about certain kinds of routines that we have also gives me a sense of um, wholeness, um, a sense of control um, that makes me feel better about whatever might have been pulling at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
um, I find that getting away, like going into New York City, even if it's a day, even if it's overnight, Mm -hmm. makes a world of difference. You're just, you know, or go someplace different, be in a different environment. Um, And, but I have trouble doing that. Um, And I have trouble, um, uh, you know, uh, not being responsive to why can't you come? uh, Why can't you quit your job and come and, you know, be with us all the time from the rest of my, all of my family as well. (laughs) Um, And while I would love to do that, I'm, you know, I just don't feel that I'm ready to give it up yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel guilty about it. I feel incredibly <laughs> selfish about it. Um, so I guess I could be doing a heck of a lot better uh, in terms of my self-care. <laughs> you know, Linda's bringing up something so important that I, mm-hmm. I meant to say as well is the the self-compassion part. Mm-hmm. Um, we we really do need to intermittently kind of be aware of our need for self compassion yeah. um, and not and letting go of some of the critical voice that is there you know all the time. Oh yeah, not to, not to call you out, Linda, because it's so, <laughs> it's so normal and we all have it. But yeah. it's just such a great example of mm-hmm. you know we we're only human and we can all only do so much and we really have to find the right balance for ourselves. It's not mm-hmm. work-life balance. It's work-life balancing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a dynamic mm. condition, you know? Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Work-life balancing. It's, it's really nice to hear that you guys have, you know, different things that you do to kind of take care of yourself. And um, I just want our listeners to really hear this and that, you know, Hopefully in the near future, self-care will be a very normal, regular, expected thing, right? Not just pushing, 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 working, 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 achieving the next goal. But, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing for self-care? It's like, oh, I'm gone for a week. I'm gone. I'm I'm taking my time or, you know, like I, I turn off my phone. I don't check emails after 5 p.m., you know, like whatever it is that you do. Um, I do hope that becomes more normalized because I think one of the biggest problems with STEAM is that there's this, we call it the suffering Olympics amongst trainees, which is like, (laughs) I work the hardest. I work 14 hours. I work all nights and weekends. You know, I don't have a family. I have, you know, I have no friends. All I have is my work and I'm focused. That is not healthy. Like I'm, you know, work is important. Career is important. You know, your passion is important too, but I think we need to quit it with the suffering Olympics. And I hope one day we're at a, at a place where we can be excited and passionate and driven and also know to like break and rest and recharge. Um, and so before we sign off, do you guys have any advice for women and other underrepresented minorities and who are, you know, who want to pursue a career in STEAM um, or maybe already in a career path, but might be maybe struggling with maintaining their mental health and well-being. Um, do you guys have any advice for our listeners? Well, I'll take a shot at that. I think, <laughs> you know, there's so many um, angles to come from and so many points of, you know, or pearls of, of wisdom, hopefully, but um 
I was just thinking about, again, kind of reiterating the, I think the importance of setting aside or even scheduling, you know, pointed self-reflection. You also need just unscheduled time to think and think freely, but you do need a little bit of focus time to just kind of think about really how you're doing at different intervals. And within that, we focus a lot in our in palliative care, my field um, in medical education on intentional practice. So really, you know, deciding that you're going to try something new, you know, I'm going to try meditation for the next two weeks, you know, and, and see how that goes. And And if that doesn't work, then maybe try it at a different time of day, or if that doesn't work. So kind of doing these cycles of intentional practice. So that hasn't worked. So I'm going to try hiking on the weekend, or maybe nature Mm -hmm. will speak to me more, or maybe (laughs) I need to set different boundaries. So kind of seeing it as your own personal improvement project and, and being very intentional about that practice and the reassessment. Um, the other thing I would just say, which is on a different wavelength is, you know, I think we talk a lot about mentoring and coaching, and I would mm-hmm. just really encourage people to not think of having just one mentor, but sort of that whole, um, I think the value of having a mentorship team Mm-hmm. where you have different people and there are more people to cheer you on yeah. whether whether they're sponsoring you or coaching you or really mentoring you in a in a specific way but different people have different strengths that they can bring to you as well mm-hmm. um and i mean there's also always you know counseling i don't you know i don't think we talk about that and there's mm-hmm. often still a sense of taboo about it mm-hmm. but many of the people that i know in the professional realm have had some counseling at different times absolutely I've, yeah i've had counseling at different times mm-hmm. same here I think, yeah <laughs> i think it's a resource to draw on when mm-hmm. you need it and if you yeah. need it for a longer time then draw on it for a longer time. But certainly, mm-hmm. you know, try not to uh, worry about that and, and prioritize it in your time if mm-hmm. if that is something that's important. It's not easy to set it up. It's not always easy to find the right match for you initially, but hopefully in the end, it, you know, it will pay off in a positive way. So don't be scared away from getting more support. Thank you, Lauren. How about you, Linda? What advice do you have? Well, I think um, going along with what Laura was saying is that um, there there are a lot of people out there um, that we can use for support, that we don't have to do everything on our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and to know the kind of people that you can trust and feel good around, spend time with those people, um, people that make you laugh. I mean, nothing is better than, um, you know, I remember this first breakout dinner after COVID and sat around just with six people and we were, you know, 12 feet apart from each other and all that. (laughs) And all we did was laugh the whole time, you know, and I said afterwards that this was the best thing ever. We weren't talking about, you know, all the, the difficulties with COVID the struggles, um, the loss, and so forth, we were just able to 
make each other laugh. And it just raised everybody's spirit. So, um, you know, I, I think that taking advantage of people that we know um, and care about and mm -hmm. that we know care about us um, can be very helpful. Um, and similar to what Laura was saying, don't be afraid to reach out um, and mm -hmm. um, let just be honest because um, that can be extremely helpful as well. Yeah. And you for them and they for you, it can be very reciprocal. Well, that was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I had, it's been such a wonderful experience hearing your guys' stories and listening to you guys talk about the work that you do and and um, just your, just how, just everything that you guys said today was just very, I feel very warm inside. And, um, you know, I, I we didn't talk about it very much in this episode. And there was another episode about conflict resolution where we did talk about help. Um, and I think that is another very important component and hopefully, you know, maybe in season two, we'll have an entire episode dedicated to mental health care. Right. Um, but, you know, for me in graduate school, I, I needed therapy. It was just so stressful, so hard. And I didn't have the tools. I, I didn't know. I didn't know how to notice when I was reaching my burning, uh, my crispy point. You know, I, I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know if anyone else was struggling like I was. And so, you know, it took three different people to be like, hey, <laughs> maybe, just maybe you need to go see a therapist. And I was very defensive at first. I was like, no, I, I'm fine. I am okay. And it took three very, very different people to be like, I think you might need some therapy. And I was very hesitant. It was very scary. It was very, uh, you know, almost like humiliating. I mean, I grew up in a Korean immigrant family. Asian Americans aren't the most comfortable with um, mental health care, with the psych psychology and psychi psychotherapy. And so I was really kind of ashamed and, and nervous about it. And it took, it took, I think after I heard it from three different people, an additional like three months to really set up an appointment. And then it took almost like six months for me to be consistent about my appointments. And I will never forget this because my therapist at the time, amazing person, um, I would keep missing my appointments. I would either show up late or not show up at all. And one day I show up to my session and he stopped and he goes, you know, I wanted to ask you a question. I'm like, okay. <laughs> He's like, do you know how it makes me feel when you don't show up for our sessions when you just miss. And I had never been, I never thought he would ask me that. Right? <laughs> like, you're a professional, you don't care. No, and, and he was like, it makes me feel like I'm not, you know, I'm my time is not important, but it makes me feel that you don't think this is important and it, it, it hurts my feelings. And I was floored because this was a personal conversation and a professional, you know, it was like weird. I didn't know how to handle it. And that was the moment things clicked for me. And I realized he was creating a space for me to come and get help and support. And he was making the space and I was not showing up for myself, but also for him. And that is what changed my relationship with therapy. And I wanted to, since, since we were able to bring this up a little bit, to tell our listeners that asking for help, getting counseling, um, whether it is with a professional or a mentor or a, a friend or family member, it's it's fine. You're not on your own. And 
you know, everyone struggles at different times for different reasons. And sometimes, you know, you can't get out of that hole by yourself. So I really do hope that our listeners, you know, um, take some time to think about what they need, you know, create a space and uh, a time for you to self-reflect and then be intentional on your self-care as Laura was saying, you know, um, not just, you know, creating hobbies, but if you really need help seeking that help and not being afraid of it. And so, um, I, the other thing I wanted to say was remember that success is rarely overnight. It's going to be a long, long, long road. <laughs> and for sustainability, you, your person needs to be okay. And so um, I just want to thank you both so much for coming on and sharing your stories. And um, I'm, I hope our listeners felt as soothed and warm as I did listening to you guys. <laughs> Thank well, you thank so much. You. Thank you for having us. Such a pleasure to be here with, with everybody. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Laura. Steam the Podcast is brought to you by RSS.com. We're produced by Brian Kelly and Christina Cho with help from T. Badri, Naomi Phillip, Emily Chu, and Sandhya Pabakaran. Our engineer is Brian Kelly at Echo Station Studio, and original music is by David James Pugo. If you like Steam the Podcast, please share it with your friends. Let them know that they can subscribe to Steam the Podcast on RSS.com Community, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. For resources and our directory of Steaminists, check out our website at projectsteamed.org. Thanks for listening and see you all next week.